Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 141 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Doug Tallamy, author of Nature's Best Hope. The plant profile is on the Cornelian cherry, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Eva Monheim, host of the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, who shares the last word on trees with unique services. This episode, we're joined by Doug Tallamy. He is the author of Nature's Best Hope, and he is joining us this episode to talk about the new edition, the Young Readers edition. Welcome, Doug. Uh, Thank you, Kathy. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. And I feel like just saying that you're the author of Nature's Best Hope is, you know, not even giving you a tenth of your background and, and all your expertise. So let's talk a little bit about you and how you came to write that book and your bringing nature home, nature's best hope, and the nature of oaks. And we always like to ask here on the Garden DC podcast, Doug, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? No, but I was born with, with nature in my veins. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a typical little boy. I loved snakes and turtles and I knew nothing about plants. So it was, it was really, it was the love of, of life that brought me to plants eventually. And that was through insects, but I didn't, I didn't meet insects until college, took a course in entomology. Um, but the love of nature and the interest in living things was there right from birth. It was a good, good way to put it. Hmm. And so you, you discovered entomology in college. Was that just a happen to be your science course that you took, or did you choose that as your major? Well, I was a biology major, mm-hmm. uh, and the chairman of the department was Dr. Bugby, believe it or not, and he taught a course <laughs> in entomology, so I had to take it. But uh, it was, yeah. you know, I like biology, but that it was extremely interesting. And then I went on to grad school in, in biology, I mean, in entomology. What got me to... Uh, you know, your original question, how did I end up writing these books, was uh, the year 2000, my wife and I moved into, uh, it was a farm that had been broken up into 10-acre lots in, in southeast Pennsylvania. And um, it was completely overridden with with uh, invasive plants. And our, our goal was to, was to restore it. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed right away is that, uh, you know, the local insects are not eating these plants. <laughs> and that led to research on what the impact of non-native plants was having on our, uh, not just our natural systems from invasive plants, but uh, we extended that into into home gardens and to managed landscapes. You know, about 80, 85% of our plants are from some other continent. What is that doing to local food webs? What is that doing to the little chickadee that wants to breed in your yard? Uh, and that has been the focus of my my research uh, ever since then. But one of the things I learned is it's, you know, the impact is huge. The problem is much bigger than I thought it was. Um, and there's there's real urgency. 
because we're hearing, you know, we're getting these headlines, global insect decline, and we've lost 3 billion breeding birds in the last 50 years. And the U.S. says we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years. These are, these are disastrous things. And I guess the conclusion I've come to is we can do something about it. Each homeowner, each gardener, each anybody who owns a piece of the earth can do something about it by managing the life on their property. Uh, and that has been my message uh, ever since. Yeah, those are some alarming things you're talking about, Doug. And I'm glad you're the one sounding that alarm and getting that message out. And before we dive into more of that message, uh, because our listeners are diehard gardeners, they want to know a little bit about what you're growing and where you grow. Maybe describe the soil in your zone and what you love to have in your garden. Well, as I said, we're southeast Pennsylvania, so we're we're seven something <laughs> zone. It keeps changing all the time. Our soil is poor. The, my front yard is practically serpentine barrens. <clears throat> the rest of the property is not not so bad. So, you know, really what I'm guarding, what I'm growing is biodiversity and I'm using the native plants that create it. So I call our, I call our, our landscape a restoration as opposed to a, a, uh, a garden. I mean, yes, we are gardening the world, but we have restored the Eastern deciduous forest and some, and some uh, Eastern meadow here. It's been, it's been 22 years that we've been here and the restoration has been enormously successful. So one of the things I've learned is you can put it back together again much easier than than I thought and much faster than I thought. But in terms of the plants that I favor, it's the ones our research has shown support the most biodiversity. And that would, oaks would be number one. Uh, and we have, gee, I don't know, 12 species of oaks here. Woody plants are supporting more than herbaceous plants, but um, we have what I call keystone plants, the ones that are, are creating most of the food that supports most of the animal life. And it turns out just 14% of our native plants are doing most of that work. They're supporting 90% of the, the food web. Um, so I focus on those. But, um, you know, any, anybody, any plant that wants to join our little ecosystem here is more than, than welcome. Our biggest challenge is, is deer, overabundance of deer, because, mm. you know, I plant something and it's gone the next day. And that's really, really frustrating. So I, I was just going to say that deer is a four letter word on this podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we love them. They're beautiful creatures, but uh, the destruction of especially our native forests is yeah. just rampant. Yeah. That is for sure. Uh, the frustrating thing is we know how to control them, but that becomes a sociological um, problem, not an mm. ecological one. And we we need we need permission to do that. Uh, it's a challenge, but you know the not controlling our deer has devastated the forest. It has devastated our ground biodiversity. It's increased the the challenge from invasive plants because they the deer eat the natives and leave the the non natives, and that shifts the competitive balance. Uh, our natives are actually very competitive, but not when they're eaten when they're two inches tall. So, And it's created the giant, giant Lyme disease problem. I've had Lyme disease five times. I'm getting tired of that. <laughs> and it's all because of overabundance of deer. Wow. Yeah. Sorry to hear about the Lyme disease. That can be, you know, really devastating. Yeah. I, I fortunately I, I get all the symptoms. I get the big bullseye and I can treat it right away. And I haven't had any long lasting problems, but there are a lot of people that don't get the bullseye, bullseye and then they don't know. And then when you don't treat it, it's a real issue. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so uh, 
know, be on the lookout for that bullseye pattern, cover up and wear long sleeves, long pants as much as you can out in the garden, especially in, you know, shrubby type areas, right? Right, right. And mm-hmm. June, May and June are the, at least where, where we live, are the, the primary months of infectivity. You can get it any time of the year, but that's that's by far when you have the most infective ticks out there. So be particularly vigilant then. And take it from an entomologist, right? You know what? I've got a little hint here, and and you're not hearing it from me, but (laughs) if you get a a deer tick and you Mm -hmm. pull it off, put Neosporin on the site immediately uh, because it takes many hours for the Borrelia of the, that's the Lyme disease infective agent, to actually get into your your capillary system. So if you put Neosporin on where the tick was, it kills it before it gets into your blood. And that is really effective, believe it or not. And it's so easy. There's no downside to it. Yeah. Okay. I am adding Neosporin to my shopping list right now (laughs) and my medicine cabinet. And so going back to one of the things you said, keystone species, Mm -hmm. I've heard a little controversy about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? I don't know. What is the controversy? (laughs) I think that uh, people are saying that we're relying too heavily on keystone species or that it should be more of a diversity um, and that that might be some of the controversy behind it. Well, first of all, you want a diversity of keystone species. When I say 14% of our native plants, that's still a lot of plants. My, my, um, the reason I bring this up is that we have been, you know, we've always gardened for aesthetics. And then when we have a switch towards native, we still are gardening for aesthetics. And and some of our most beautiful natives are not the most productive in terms of supporting the food web. So my position has been we've the the keystone plants are the are the two by fours in the ecological house that you're building, and they're essential. So once you went because they're the support system, you can't build a house out of wallpaper. Uh, but once you have them, yes, you do want to diversify. Um, diversity is is the key to stability so well, I certainly don't you know don't fight that at all but <clears throat> there are people that that um, you know they're very happy they have a, an idea in their in their yard and it supports some pollinators it doesn't support a single caterpillar which means if that's all you have you can't have any breeding birds because it takes thousands of caterpillars to get one clutch of bird to the point where they they mature so I'm just saying let's add those those keystone plants any chance we get, but we're not, you know, I'm not, I'm not against diversity either. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think one of your principles in nature's best hope uh, was a mix. I think the percentage was 70% native, 30% non-native, correct? Um, We, (laughs) yes, correct. But that comes from one study from my my PhD student, uh, Desiree Narango. Um, and it's the only study that has been done. And it was huge. It was a five-year study, big NSF-supported, whole bunch of interns. Um, that showed, you know, the question was, how well does a landscape that's dominated by native plants support chickadee populations compared to a landscape dominated by non-native plants? And, and the results were that uh, you actually can maintain a food web capable of supporting breeding chickadees with as many as 30% of your your uh, plant biomass non-native. But that's one bird, one study in one place. And I know it's been extrapolated. People all over the country saying, well, 70%, 70%. It's a good starting point, but it's definitely a case where the more is better. 
but um, it did show. Yes, you we can. There is room for compromise. You can have your crepe myrtle. You can have your ginkgo. You know, we really can't tolerate any invasive uh, plants because they're they're just ecological tumors. They don't stay where we plant them, and they multiply. But there's a lot of of ornamentals that are not invasive, and um, it doesn't mean you know if we're going to landscape for for uh, ecological function, we can have uh, attractive plants from other places uh, as as a compromise. But when they become dominant, then you really do lose lose the food web. Hmm. So I'm glad to hear I don't have to throw out my beloved peonies. And I just love that statistic, the 70-30, because it makes it accessible to the home gardener, the homeowner who's, you know, uh, afraid of tearing out everything and switching 100% to natives overnight. They feel like, you know, there's this edict or this weight on their head to do it immediately and get that done. But I think a gradual transition and that goal of 70-30 makes it more doable. Right. And remember, it's 70-30 biomass. If you have one large oak tree in your yard, that's a lot of biomass. So it's not counting the number of plants you have. It's the amount of of biomass you have of those powerful natives versus other things. Um, So you actually could have more numbers of species of non-natives as long as it's balanced by a a goodly biomass from from the productive natives. Hmm. Yeah, I have four huge oaks on a tiny urban lot and i feel like that is 90 percent of my biomass <laughs> we're doing well that's right yeah um so i'm like uh you know could fill in with the other things but i do grow a lot of natives and some of those because we're talking mainly to a mid-atlantic audience um, let's talk about some recommended species to add to your garden that would support both those caterpillars and the birds that eat them right well Um, All right, let's move to herbaceous plants uh, briefly. If you look at at the plants that are best at supporting pollinators and caterpillars, uh, the number one in our area would be any one of the solidagos, the goldenrods. Support 110 species of caterpillars, and they support uh, a number of species of specialist bees. If you're making a pollinator garden, you want to plant for the specialist bees, the bees that can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants because the generalist bees can use those plants as well. If you only plant for the generalist bees, you lose all the specialists. And we've got about 4,000 species of native bees in this country, and over 1,000 of them are specialized, and we don't want to lose those. So goldenrods would be uh, way up there. Our native asters are way up there. Um, perennial sunflowers are, are way up there. If you have those three genera in your, your yard, you, there's up to 44 species of specialist bees that can use your yard as, as a, a place to reproduce that won't be there if you don't have those three types of plants. Hmm. And in the asters, you're definitely talking about, of course, native asters because there are asters all over the world. Yes. Yes. And what I love about those selections you just named is they are late season bloomers. So they really extend the bloom and perennials, of course. But we can't ignore those early season uh, bloomers. And of course, if you're focusing on pollinators, Redbud is an essential early season uh, bloomer. Native willows, native pussy willow, you know, uh, Salix uh, discolor. Um, they'll be coming out. Actually, if you're down in D.C., they might be out already. Uh, and they're a, a, a very important source for, for those first uh, season bees. 
And, and I mentioned oaks earlier as being the best in terms of, of making caterpillars, and they are. They support more than 950 species of caterpillars nationwide. But even though they're wind pollinated, uh, they also help the pollinators. Those, those male catkins hang down and loaded with pollen. And the, if you get your binoculars out and just train it on some of those catkins, you'll see the native bees are going there and removing the pollen um, all day long. Now, they're not pollinating because they're not moving into the female flowers of the oaks, but they are, oaks are supporting our pollinators. So uh, it's another benefit of those plants. Hmm. Well, that makes me feel better, Doug, about, I call them the tumbleweeds that fall when all those catkins come oh, yeah. down. Yeah. And your garden is just covered in this these brown balls of uh, the late catkins, but they're fun to mulch with and to add to your compost pile. And to fill up your gutters, I know. Yes, <laughs> that as well. Yeah, don't park under an oak tree at that point in the season. Yeah. It's kind of like, a, you know, a shaggy rain at that point. Yes, that and then the, the yellow pollen that falls from the pines. Well, it's all part of life. It's, it's there are pluses and minuses, and there's some things we have to put up with. But uh, this is another important message that I keep trying to get out is that, that nature's not optional. And there are some downsides, but it is what keeps us alive on this planet. And we have to landscape in a way that supports it for our own good. And if that means acorns on the ground sometime or pollen on our windshield, that's okay. <laughs> I like to, to compare it to uh, telephone poles. You know, telephone poles bringing us electricity, they're ugly as sin, and nobody ever complains. Nobody ever says, I don't like them. I'm going to go, I'm going to go chainsaw them down because we know they're absolutely necessary. And there are parts of nature that are absolutely necessary as well that we just have to start accepting instead of just saying, we're going to remove all of it. Hmm. I love that. Nature is not optional. And so in the new version of Nature's Best Hope, uh, which is directed at young readers, what is the age group and why did you feel the necessi necessity uh, of coming up with a second version aimed at younger readers? Well, the age group uh, is... <laughs> It's hard to say because the kids differ so much in their reading abilities, but mm -hmm. I would say eight, eight to 12 was probably the, the target middle schoolish. Um, some of it is written a little bit younger than that, but uh, when you get above that, there's, you know, the original version nature's best hope is, is not over their heads. Why did, why do we want to do this? Because uh, the kids on this planet are the future stewards of that planet. And right now they are so disconnected from nature. And if you listen to the media, when it talks about nature, it's almost all negative. If you go outside, you're going to, you know, a mosquito is going to kill you or uh, something terrible will happen. And it's just a big turnoff for our, our kids. So the message has been, you have to fear nature, stay away from it. You know, screen time is what life is all about. And yet these are going to be the future stewards of our planet. So the message in Nature's Best Hope is, no, you, you are nature's best hope. And if you buy into the fact that nature is not optional, that means it is it is you who's going to take care of this planet. Uh, and not only are you going to take care of the planet, it is your responsibility to do that. Because we all need healthy ecosystems, every one of us has a responsibility of taking care of those, those ecosystems, not just the tree huggers, not just a few ecologists. And that's a message 
I want to get, you know, I'm working to get it to all the adults out there, but the kids as well. We've got to focus on the kids. So we're hoping this will, will take off in school systems, maybe be used in, in uh, some coursework or after school activity. I'm not sure. It hasn't really been released yet at the end of March, and we'll just see uh, how, it, how it goes. Hmm. Yeah, that's great that it's coming out in a few weeks. And the subtitle, How You Can Save the World in Your Own Yard. I love that. It's so empowering. That's it. You know, the, the, the planet has huge problems and more and more people recognize that, but they all feel powerless. What can one person do? Well, one person can do a lot. And that's what we outline in the book, all the things that you can do from as easy to changing the, the light bulb over your front, front porch from a white bulb to a yellow bulb that will reduce the number of insects that are killed every, every night during the summertime. Very easy to do, but have a huge impact. And in the book, you have a chapter on homegrown national park. And if you look that up in the National Park Service website, you're not going to find it as a location. So can you define that to our listeners? Yeah. Well, 78% of the country is privately owned. 85% of the country east of the Mississippi is privately owned. So if we don't do conservation on private property, we're going to fail. And as we've already mentioned, we can't afford to, to fail. Uh, we have to start, you know, our, our, our parks and our preserves are islands surrounded typically by no man's land. Uh, so what we need to do is if we practice conservation of private property, that's all the area in uh, between those parks, create viable habitat where we actually live and work and play. Um, then our preserves are not islands. Then the populations within them are not so tiny. So when they fluctuate, they won't just blink out and disappear because that's what's happening right now. Well, who's going to do that? It's property owners for the most part, uh, and they don't know that that's what they're supposed to do. They don't. They don't. All the things we just talked about, most people don't have a clue uh, about it. So, Homegrown National Park was was uh, it's a small nonprofit co-founded with uh, Michelle Alfandari, and uh, she was actually a perfect example of the non-choir. She had just retired from a, you know a marketing job in, in Manhattan. Did, knew nothing about biodiversity or the biodiversity crisis uh, or conservation or anything else. But she heard me give a talk and said, you know, you really have to get this message to people just like me. We don't know anything about this. And she came at the con- with the concept of, of getting on the map. So the object is to register your property where you live at Homegrown National Park. And it's free, by the way. And the amount of area that you're going to start to, to landscape in, in an ecologically responsible way. Maybe you're going to reduce the area of lawn because lawn isn't, isn't helping us much. Um, maybe you're going to plant an oak tree. Maybe you're going to put that aster in a flower pot. Whatever you do, uh, you're going to record that area. And then that information goes onto the map. And your little piece of your county will light up. And you get to see who else has joined Homegrown National Park. But the object is to enlist the millions of people out there. Uh, that's this grassroots uh, army that can participate in conservation to turn around the biodiversity crisis so we don't see these headlines all the time. If we put the right plants back where we live, work, play, and to a lesser extent farm, we really can. We can turn around those bird losses. We can turn around many of the terrible statistics we're, we're seeing. And it's not an if, it's when we do it because it's our only option. We have to do it. 
So Homegrown National Park is a, is a it's kind of a social media uh, approach to getting the message to the non-choir people. Your, your state will be color-coded with how many people are participating. And the darker green you are, the, the better your state's doing. And that creates a, a competitive aspect to it. Um, so it's, it's young. We're, we're in our second year. But uh, we've got, I don't know, about 24,000 uh, members at this point, And it's growing, growing rapidly. So we're, we're pleased. Wow, 24,000 is impressive. With 24,000, it's really families. So if you count the number of people in those families, it could be closer to 100,000. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times on the podcast, we cover that kind of friction between local regulations and uh, sometimes HOAs and what we can grow in our own yards. Uh, Is that part of that campaign? Well, it is. It is a friction, historically uh, a serious one. Um, it's becoming less and less. You know, there's this idea that if you use native plants, it's going to be wild and ugly and lower property values. Uh, and back in the 70s, people really took that to heart and they wrote some very strict uh, homeowner association rules. Everybody has to have the same same plants and the same height grass and, and so on. First of all, it's not true. If you if you do a good job landscaping, it's not going to lower your property value. And we're actually getting to the point where it in, is increasing property values. Um, we do want to landscape without giving up aesthetics. Uh, well, I say we should reduce the area of lawn, but not get rid of it. It's a cue for care. And the lawn we keep should be manicured. It's where we should walk because it's the perfect plant to walk on. We're just going to have more plants in our yards rather than two or three acres of lawn. We do have 44 million acres of lawn right now, which is uh, an area bigger than New England. And it's dedicated to an ecological deadscape because it's a status symbol. We can have our status symbol and have less lawn, and we could do it without violating any of the HOA regulations uh, if we do it tastefully. You know, there was a couple in, in Maryland, I'm sure you've heard about it, We who fought the lawn and the lawn lost, they, they, they sued their HOA saying, we want to have uh, our plants in our yard and they won. So there's now a legal precedent for HOAs to, to not push this too much. But we want to respect the culture. We do want to change the culture to where the, the normal uh, landscape has a lot more plants in it than it, than it used to have. <clears throat> and it's happening. It's happening. The uh, nursery industry is recognizing that there is a real market in native plants that carrying more of them. We're still at a point where the demand for natives is, uh, exceeds the supply. So now we have uh, business opportunities. We need to grow uh, what I call native plant landscapers um, or ecological landscapers. Uh, there are a few around, but we need many, many more because most people really don't garden. Most people just hire somebody. I'd like to replace the whole mow, blow, and go industry with trained ecological landscapers so they can come and put in the plants we need, maintain them. Nobody's going to lose their job, but we're going to do it in a way that actually supports the life around us. That's the ultimate goal. And none of that should conflict with homeowner association rules. And to convert part of the horticulture industry from you know, the mow and blow landscape guys into what you're describing, it will probably take some type of training or certification program. Is any of that in the works? Yeah, a few here and there. You know, we've got one at the University of Delaware. Not nearly enough, though. Not nearly enough. So now people are, they're putting out their shingles with their own experience. 
I have nothing, nothing against that. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, you're right. We need, we need uh, some organized certification programs. Um, I'm not sure, maybe through Master Gardeners. You know, I talk about all these things. Everybody expects me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I need a little help here, but um, yes. Yeah. yeah. As the messenger, you're also always tasked to be the doer. And that's exactly. two different yeah. things, you know, that that's really tough, but you know, there is a Chesapeake Bay landscape uh, mm -hmm. certification in yes. the mid Atlantic. So that can start there. And of course, self-taught and self-experience and somebody who is a professional landscaper who would, or who was to read your books and to really, you know, grasp those messages, I think could do well. Yeah. It is happening. It is happening and, and it's accelerating. So, um, uh, so people say, what gives you hope? That's what gives me hope. People are, are listening. People are, are eager when they hear there's actually something they can do personally and see the results. They get excited about that. There's, you know, there's very few environmental issues where you can do anything but throw up your hands. But this is, this is when you really can do something. You can see the results. You can see the life come to your yard. I always use what's what's happened at at our house. We put, you know, we put the plants back, and uh, my research has shown if you know the number of moth species that are making a living in a particular food web, you have an index of how stable and how productive that food web is. In other words, how many other species can it support? So I've been counting the number of moths that uh, are making a living in, at my house. Now I've got a picture of each one of them. And I'm up to 1,199 species of moths that have come back since we put the plants back. So it's that's enormously encouraging. You know, it says this really does work. We've got 60 species of birds that have bred here, not flew by, but bred here because we've got all that bird food. So it works. And that's, you know, that's really encouraging. Yeah, I love that it's a positive message because, Doug, I have been to so many like environmental programs, talks, films, you know, documentaries that kind of end like with a wah, wah, you know, yeah. <laughs> they don't really help with the solution. They just I point know. out the, the, you know, errors of our ways, but right. then kind of leave you really depressed. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's not the solution. Okay, we know what the problem is, but now we need to spread the message that we are the solution, which is this, that's where that title comes from. Nature's best hope. We all are nature's best hope. Yay. And so I know that you are doing some work or had done some work with Mount Cuba, and we've had several uh, staff from Mount Cuba on the podcast before talking about their trials of native plants and the cultivars. And when you talked about the availability of native plants at local nurseries, that's one of the cruxes, right, that uh, we have as a home gardener is sourcing native plants and then making that decision, should we do straight species, is one of the cultivars better or just as good? Right. Uh, and the answer is it depends. <laughs> so, you know, we as humans, we want a black and white answer, yes or no, but it's just not that simple. Whether or not the cultivar is as good as the straight species at some ecological function depends on what the genetic trait was that created the cultivar to begin with. Many cultivars are found in nature. They're natural variants and somebody's brought them in and then cloned them and, and put a name on it. Many of them. Uh, others have been actively selected for, but uh, whether or not that, that increases or decreases the ecological value, again, depends on what the trait was. We did an experiment at Mount Cuba. It was a three-year common garden experience, experiment. 
looking at traits of woody plants. So it wasn't about flowers. It was about, uh, you know, whether you took a green leaf and made it red or purple, um, whether you had variegated leaves, whether you made a tall plant short, whether you enhanced berry size, the typical cultivar traits that you see in the industry all the time. And the only one that decreased insect use consistently was taking a green leaf and making it red or purple because that loads the leaf with anthocyanins, which are feeding deterrents. The other, tra- the other cultivar traits didn't reduce insect use at all. My only caveat, and, and Matt Cuba, by the way, is doing some wonderful trial garden experiments looking at a whole bunch of cultivars of flowering plants to see which ones are, are servicing the pollinators and, and which ones aren't because some of them don't and some of them do. The one, one caveat I would, I would add is that um, I wish we could find a way to propagate these cultivars and maintain genetic variability at the same time. When you clone them, you've lost all the genetic variability. And we know in the age of, in any age, but particularly the age of climate change, genetic variability is, is that's the mechanism by which our plants are going to adapt to all these serious changes we're throwing at them. So I tell people, you know, I'd, I'd love to see nurseries carry the straight species along with the cultivars, and then you can decide. Right now, if you go to a nursery, it's very often the cultivar only. They don't even have the straight species. We know the straight species work. Um, the cultivars sometimes work. Uh, uh, there are examples where they actually work better. The uh, Phlox uh, paniculata jenna. Uh, it was a natural variant found in Georgia um, and has twice the flowers on it as a straight species. And yes, it supports twice the pollinators. So, um, you know, that's, that's good. But we'd love to maintain that genetic variability so that we can, we can um, provide the stuff that makes natural selection work for the future of our plants in our gardens. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough conundrum because you know, with as a grower or a wholesaler or a breeder of plants, you want consistency exactly. in product, of course, and you want to be able to guarantee that for the retailers and the seller. And then, of course, for the grower, the home gardener, the consumer at the end, wants that consistency and, and kind of that guarantee that mm-hmm. it's going to do well in their in their climate. Yeah. Hmm. So breeders out there get to work. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, I go to a lot of native plant sales and to garden club swaps, and that's a great place to source your native plants as both those, um, because usually people have goldenrod to spare or asters to spare, right? Yeah, yeah, which is great, and that's from your local ecosystem if you're going to your local garden club swaps. And so I know you're super busy writing these books and giving talks, but you're also a professor. Um, is that University of Delaware, correct? That's right. And I wanted to ask a little bit about your university students and what you're seeing and any changes in the past decade or so of teaching um, in their attitudes and what they're curious and what they're asking about. Well, I'm in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology. So the students that come to our department are already interested in, in nature. They're interested in conservation. So it's a very biased uh, sample. I do get inquiries uh, from students all over the country. You know, can I come be your graduate student? Plenty of interest there, far more than I have the money to to support. Uh, So I think the students are reflecting general uh, public's increase in in conservation, increase in in finding ways to address these serious issues that that they're reading about in the New York Times or the Washington Post. They want to do something about it. Um, the students at the University of Delaware, you know, I 
I've been there 42 years and the, the quality of student that goes to the university now is uh, considerably higher than it was 42 years ago. So we got some good students. What we don't have is the resources to support all the students that, that want to study this. So that's, that's a problem across the country, I think. Hmm. And the careers that are going on to what type of uh, jobs would they be taking post-graduation? You know, the, the um, state jobs and, and conservation or wildlife uh, agencies in Delaware, they're just dominated by our students. They go out all over the country. <clears throat> uh, we have students working in, in zoos. The uh, head of the primate center at the Philadelphia Zoo is our, our student. Many students go on to graduate school. Uh, so they can either go into academia or, or research, um, you know, the huge conservation organizations like uh, um, Conservation International and, and uh, National Wildlife Federation. Uh, there's Sierra Club. All of these these people are hiring our, our students at one level or another. Um, you know, that's the first question that parents ask us when they come in. Can my, can my son or daughter get a job? And mm-hmm. the... Uh, you know, the realization that uh, we do need to actively put the earth back together again is is spreading. I mean, look at the uh, the UN's uh, 30 by 30 initiative. We're going to save 30 percent of the planet by 2030. Um, that's a great goal, but it's going to take people to do that and they need to be trained. So I am looking for an increase in the number of, of available jobs in conservation organizations over the next coming years. I've been saying that for a while now, but uh, <laughs> but we are seeing a, a lot more public interest in it. So I think it's gonna happen, but um, it's not enough right now. We need we need more of these paid positions. You need to be able to make a good, uh, you know, have a good career doing this uh, or it's not gonna attract people. I agree. And I think the funding will come eventually, but it just needs to uh, be politically pushed Right. is one way to phrase it. Um, the priorities have to be conveyed to the politicians. Yeah. I think we're lucky uh, in, in so far, you know, everything becomes politicized. It's red or it's blue. Um, but everybody needs a healthy environment. Even people who pretend they don't, they do. And uh, I think that has, has helped keep uh, the, you know, the contentious political uh, rivalry out of of um, many of these conservation issues. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I thought I would get pushback from a whole bunch of people, but I really haven't gotten it. People are on board and that's encouraging to me, red or blue, you know, conservative or not. I agree. Yeah. I think it's just a matter when I say politically of budgeting, it's not a matter of, you know, whether it's one party or the other who is behind it, but it's priorities over your, of course, you know, there's other priorities in school and policing and that sort of thing. And all of those are important, but what piece of the pie is the environment going to get? Yeah. And that's the tough one because it's a new piece of the pie. It's not new. People are just seeing it for the first time. So all the old problems still exist. Now we're asking for, for money to support this as well. And that kind of, kind of sneak in there and say, we need a piece of that pie as well. Hmm. That's a tough one, but something to keep on working at. And Doug, I was going to ask, who are your influences? Because I'm hearing about these university students going on to great things, and we could call them the Talami acolytes <laughs> or disciples that are spreading that message throughout the world and the nation. 
but I bet there was somebody in your past who, or some buddies who um, brought these messages to you. Yes, there certainly were. You know, I mentioned Dr. Bugby at Allegheny College back in 1972. Uh, he's the one that got me on this this track. Um, but as, as soon as I got to graduate school, I started reading about E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson from, from uh, Harvard, and I read all of his books. He just died the day after Christmas two years ago. But he, you know, he, he was kind of my academic god the whole, whole time. Um, had the pleasure of meeting him uh, several times. Um, so he, you know, not only did he tell us biodiversity exists, it's really important, it's disappearing, and this is how you save it. Uh, he did that consistently throughout his entire career. And for a long time, he was, uh, you know, a voice crying in the wilderness. But um, of course, now that he's gone, things are really accelerating. There's the E.O. Wilson uh, Half Earth Society. We're going to save half to 50% of the earth. And these are real things that exist now. And it's all because of, of his work. Hmm. Yeah, he was a great man. And I think uh, not enough people are even aware of his work. And I hope that some of his publications and things are, are more widespread now. Yeah, well, I hope so too. You know, he wrote a lot of books and he, he wrote them for the public, um, he was a really smart guy. And I think that if he, if he had a downside, it, it was that he was writing above the average public's head. And, and so they're not finding them as accessible as, as they could have been. But I mean, he wrote a book, I think it was 1990 or 1992, just called The Diversity of Life. It's a it's a, still a great book. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it starts out talking about how after uh, the big volcano in uh, Krakatoa, exploded, wiped out all the life on that, that island. And then people studied how it, how it came back. And that's, that's a positive message right there. Even if you're starting with bare rock, biodiversity will return if you give it, give it a chance. But that's a great read for anybody who wants to be introduced to this subject. It's dated, but not out of date, <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes total sense. And that does bring up what we've said on the podcast before that plants want to live, you know, as gardeners, we're kind of the stewards, the nurturers, um, giving the right plant in the right place a chance, you know, helps it along a bit. But a lot of times you can just plop it in the soil and walk away and it, it'll do just as fine without you. Yeah. Well, I love how you say, you know, gardeners are, are stewards of plants, uh, which makes them stewards of everything. Because, of course, it's plants that capture the energy from the sun and turn it into the food that supports just about all the animals on the planet. Um, so losing our plants is not an option. And what's the figure? Forty percent of our plants are now in danger, some crazy thing like that. We need to save the plants. We need to save all the plants. And gardeners are in better position to do that than anybody. Mm-hmm. And for gardening practices, you know, there's kind of the two major schools of gardening, which are the collector gardeners and kind of the landscape that design a beautiful garden and, and like the whole feel overall versus the individual plants. Where do you fall on that spectrum, Doug? Uh, I'm definitely more in the, the, the landscape aspect of it. And, and I go, go beyond. I mean, that's why I, I really don't talk about gardens because people have this image. The garden is that little little patch of your yard next to the, the front porch that you work on and everything else doesn't count. Uh. I say everything else does count. Every square inch of your, your property is part of your landscape. 
And what you do with those square inches is going to determine um, how much life can, can exist in your, your garden, your space, your landscape on your property. So I push beyond the design. I'm not a landscape designer on, on any, any level. Uh, to uh, to conservation. What can we do to our landscape that will allow us to share our landscape with the most other species in a very productive and, and uh, fun and educational and healthy way? I mean, all the research showing that that um, the health benefits to humans when you when you interact with plants or other parts of, of nature, it's astounding the wonderful things that happen when you spend a little time uh, staring at a tree. It's really amazing. Uh, so, so it's really, it's just, you know, win, win, win all the way around. And that's, you know, that's what I've been focusing on. It's really the big picture. Great. And how can our listeners contact you or follow up for more information? Well, the, the best source of information about all of this would be homegrownnationalpark.org. Uh, it's, it's all there in, in one, one form or another. Or you could, we could buy one of my books. That'll help. Yes. And I was going to say, you didn't plug your book and I will definitely put a link to both the nature's best hope and the new version for young readers coming out in our show notes and any final thoughts, Doug, for home gardeners looking to have uh, more diversity, more natives in their landscape. Uh, I guess, you know, since we're focusing on gardeners at this point, I would point out that you, you are, you have the potential to be a model for all of your neighbors. You know, this is how we ought to do it. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to go proselytize or knock on anybody's door. Just make a, a, you know, a wonderfully attractive, productive landscape and enough neighbors will say, hey, I want that too. And that's how we change the entire culture. So it puts, it puts all of our gardeners in, in a very powerful position. That's wonderful. I think gardening by example Yes, a terrific way to teach, you know, rather than berating people or, um, you know, chastising them for doing it the wrong way, showing them the right way is always the best way. Right. Well, thank you, Doug, for sharing your book, for your knowledge and your passion. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I always appreciate it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cornus moss plant profile. Cornelian cherry, Cornus moss, is a small tree or large shrub in the dogwood family. It is deciduous and blooms in the late winter into early spring. The flowers are a clear yellow and are held out on short stems along the branches. It is native to Western Asia and Southern Europe. It is hardy to USDA zones 4 to 8. It grows best in full sun to part shade in average soils. Cornelian cherry is deer resistant and low maintenance. It is a good choice for an urban street tree because of its small size and tough nature. Remove any root suckers as soon as you see them emerge to control its spread. 
Cornelian cherry gets its common name from the fruits it produces in midsummer. These are edible, though a bit astringent. They are quite good processed into jams, jellies, and syrups. The fruits are also eaten by birds and squirrels. Cornus moss, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, I'm happy to report the little Scylla Siberian squill are popping up and looking adorable right now. And I spent some time up at the Philadelphia Flower Show and posted over 300 photos to our Washington Gardener Magazine Facebook page, so you can check those out there. It was quite the immersive experience jumping into spring and lovely as always. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to attend include the U.S. National Arboretum's Flowering Cherry Symposium, Connecting Cultures, Japanese Flowering Cherries in America. It takes place Saturday, March 18th, 1 to 4.30 p.m. at the auditorium in the administrative building of the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. You can Register for that and find out more details at usna.usda.gov. The cost is $20 for the general public, $16 for FONA and MBF members. Also happening that same afternoon is the Maryland Native Plant Society's hybrid program and field trip, Foraging and Cooking with Invasive and Non-Native Plants. So it is again Saturday, March 18th at 3 p.m. There's an online component and an in-person component at the Miller branch of the Howard County Library. You can find out more about that and register at mdflora.org. The following day, Sunday, March 19th at 2 p.m., the Potomac Rose Society celebrates spring by sharing their favorite roses. Uh, so sign up for their Zoom at potomacrose.org and the member uh, event is open to non-members and free to all but they would love for you to join the Potomac Rose Society again at potomacrose.org and then finally on Monday March 20th the Silver Spring Garden Club is hosting a talk on gardens by the bay in Singapore and Keith Tomlinson will be sharing his experiences and knowledge about this wonderful public garden. The Silver Spring Garden Club meeting is free and open to the public. It takes place at 7.30 p.m. that evening at Brookside Gardens Visitor Center Auditorium. You can find out more details about that at silverspringgardenclub.com or .org and at the Silver Spring Garden Club Facebook page. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. 
reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Hello, my name is Eva Monheim, and I'm from the Planetarium Trees podcast. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about the different types of trees that there are, the functions that they they provide, and um, one is a way for a plant to search for water in a dry area. Some trees have the ability to put put down a very very deep root that will pull up water to the surface of the of the um, soil. And that type of plant, considered to be a, a pioneer species, will actually be there to create an environment for other plants to settle in. So if it's a, if it's a barren area or if it's in a city setting um, where you have a lot of concrete, uh, for example, uh, polonia will push down a root very, very deep and pull up water to the surface. It actually happens to like limestone soils. And its main purpose in life is to be a deconstructionist, breaking up rock, breaking up concrete, and bringing the water to the surface. Then after it starts to drop its leaves, it actually makes a layer of organic material so that something else can come in to grow in this uninhabitable area. Another plant that has a wonderful uh, characteristic is the willow, the group of willows. 
And willows are usually found in riparian areas, and their purpose is to create a thick mat of roots to hold back uh, soil particles so they don't erode into the water. And one of their key characteristics is the ability to regenerate from a cutting or broken stem. So if a tree drops a limb onto the ground, that limb has the potential to root very quickly, especially um, when the water um, is pretty high and the soil is very wet. They can put out their roots very quickly within a matter of weeks. They can have a root root um, a whole root system developed. Their branches will fall, but also they're very early bloomers and they provide um, wonderful um, nectar for early pollinators. That's another type of plant, one that actually holds back soil as opposed to breaking up soil. Then there are other plants that actually are very large and very fibrous rooted and they're actually stabilizers. When I say stabilizers, they uh, try to keep the status quo. For example, in a woodland, a very big tree, uh, like a lindera, um, not a lindera, but a, a tulip tree, uh, Liriodendron tulipifera, they are also not, not only deep-rooted, but they also have a very fibrous root system that allows for uh, the soil to be uh, inhabited by other plants, smaller plants, like grasses or uh, carracks. I want to say carracks or some annuals that would typically grow in a woodland. And it also drops its lower limbs for a very good reason, because it allows for other trees to come in that are understory trees. Those understory trees uh, provide additional habitat for other creatures. For example, an American holly growing underneath a tulip tree allows for layering of the forest atmosphere so that there is plenty of layers for animals to live within. So there's lots of different types of actions that trees provide that we really don't think about. We see them together or separately. And especially when we have a plant on our front lawn, we see the tree solitary and we really don't know what its full function is until it's in its natural environment. And we think of an oak tree, for example, when it's on our front lawn, it could get very big and wide. But if it was in a woodland, it would be tall and narrow so that it can get the light from the top of the woods and it would be a canopy tree along with the tulip tree, along with maybe some hickories. And it would also provide a space underneath itself so that other plants can grow, like smaller story trees, as I mentioned with the tulip tree. You might have dogwoods growing underneath it, or you may have a red bud growing underneath it. Um, and a red bud, for example, growing in a woodland provides nitrogen for the soil because it fixes nitrogen on its root system. And those nodules 
provide nitrogen for the, the, the surrounding soil and for surrounding organisms that might be living in the area. So we have this uh, coexistence of plant material that allows for uh, layering and also for sharing resources. Uh, sometimes trees will actually uh, provide water for another tree if it has so much, or if a tree has so little that it can actually take from another tree or, or give to another tree. Those things happen all the time, but we just don't see it and we're not aware of it, but those functions do happen. Also, another thing is that the edge of a woodland is critical because that's a great area for our native bees. They can actually burrow into the soil and have a place to live close to plants that may be in bloom, and especially along the, the ecotone of the woodland, which is what it's called, where you have a shrubby border. And that shrubby border may have lots of blooming plants, and those bees are very close to those plants to pollinate. So there's lots of different types of uh, trees that function in different ways. And we can't think of them all functioning the same way because it's just like people. They don't all have the same profession or they don't function the same way in a particular setting. Each one has its own, uh, I would say, talents. Uh, for uh, being in nature. So that's my talk for today. And my name is Eva Monheim, and I'm with the Planetarium Trees podcast. Thank you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.